Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship with God. Scripture tells us that uh, it is God the Holy Spirit who indwells the believer, who helps us to understand His Word, who stores it in our soul, uh, reminds us of what we have learned, and helps us to apply it when we need to. To be in fellowship, we need to make sure that we have no uh, uh, unconfessed sin in our lives, or we're not out of fellowship. So we have 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all, all unrighteousness. So we always take a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're in fellowship. Use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we are able to gather together this morning to look at your word, that our souls might be refreshed by the eternal truths that are there, that that as we expose our own thinking to the eternal light of your word, that under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, we might be able to understand the nature of reality, that we might not rely upon our own resources, our own experience, our own limited and finite rational capabilities, but that we might be able to understand the absolute truths of your word and reality as you have created it. Father, we thank you for this country that we live in, for the freedoms that we have, and as we are engaged in this uh, military struggle and fight war against terrorism, we pray that you might give our leaders wisdom. We pray for protection for our president for Secretary of State Powell as they travel this week and in the next couple of weeks as they're out of the country, that you would protect them. Father, we pray for the military, uh, the decisions that have to be made, for the men involved, that you would give them wisdom, give them skill, that they might be able to fulfill their jobs and their mission effectively. Father, we pray for the believers that are involved, that they might be able to execute their mission to your glory, and we pray for those who are in the military from this congregation that uh, and associated with this congregation, that you would protect them, that you would give their families peace and comfort uh, during this time of absence, and that they might uh, be able to use this time as a means to further their own spiritual growth and advance. Father, we pray now as we study your word that we might understand these things as They apply to our own thinking. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to the first chapter of Ruth. First chapter of Ruth in the Old Testament. 
It is the eighth book in Joshua, Judges, then Ruth, that tiny little almost novella sandwiched in between the book of Judges and 1 Samuel. Ruth, as I have stated in our previous two classes, is a remarkable little book. It is one of these small books that it's easy to read through very quickly, hit the high points and move on and miss the meat that is in this uh, short book. It is written in a fantastic uh, way. The author was uh, extremely literate. He used many different styles, many different literary devices in the Hebrew in order to bring out his points. He's not the kind of writer that is going to bludgeon you over the head with a lot of things in bold face, but he uses uh, more subtle techniques through uh, different literary devices to bring out his points. So it, it, it's important to take our time as we go through the book. It's also important to, as I go through the book in the Hebrew to not rush past things, but to stop and, and uh, analyze each phrase, each clause, each word. Uh, John... I'm going to turn blue if you don't turn that fan off. Thanks. And I'm sure others in the congregation might turn blue as well. What an odd fall we've had, isn't it? Isn't it great? This is like Houston. You know, highs in the mid-70s in October. That's great. I called my dad yesterday. It was 60 degrees there and 70 degrees here. <laughs> that doesn't happen very much. Ruth is the story not about Ruth as much as it is about Naomi. And it is easy to miss that point. Naomi is introduced to us in the first four verses. We read that in verse 1. Now, it came about in the days when the judges governed, according to the New American Standard, which is a fair translation and recognizes that the author of Ruth is using the Hebrew vocabulary uh, for judges and the verb shaf. Shaphat to rule in the same way as the author of the book of Judges, which shows us that this book is firmly placed within the same historical context as the book of Judges. This is not a book that was written sometime later in the uh, uh, late monarchy or in the post-exilic period, as liberals would sometimes claim, but is a book that is clearly placed by its use of language it's a, uh, an older form of Hebrew that it is clearly placed within the historical context of approximately uh, 1200 uh, to 1100 B.C. It came about in the days when the judges ruled or the judges governed. There was a famine in the land. Now, this is the first sign of suffering that we see, and this is going to introduce us at the beginning to the backdrop of this book, which is God's purposes for suffering and adversity. There was a famine in the land. And we have seen in our study from Leviticus chapter 26 and Deuteronomy 28 that God had entered into a covenant with the nation Israel. That covenant we call the the Sinai Treaty or the Mosaic Law. And that was a peace treaty based on a form in the ancient world. And what always happens whenever you get in some sort of... uh, uh, liberal Western civilization class taught by somebody who doesn't know what they're talking about, that they always try to find the, the model and comparison of the Mosaic Law with the Code of Hammurabi, which is completely erroneous. The model was the ancient Suzerain-Vassal Treaty form that we have various examples from 
uh, from the Hittite Empire and other ancient empires. And in the Suzerain Vassal Treaty, you have the Suzerain, who is the great king, the king of whatever the empire was at that day, and he is making a treaty with the nations that he has conquered. So you have various client nations to the great empire, and he promises that if there is, uh, that he will do certain things. He will bless, prosper, provide for that client nation on the conditions of their obedience to the treaty, and he will execute certain judgments or curses against the client nation if there is disobedience. And we have studied the Susan Vassal Treaty form in detail in the past, so I'm not going to go over it again. But it has a, there are five basic divisions in the Suzerain Vassal Treaty, which are, can easily be seen in the Mosaic Covenant, in the Book of the Law, and in Deuteronomy. And since this was a treaty form that was only uh, used in the mid-2nd century millennium, roughly from about 1700 to about uh, 1200 B.C., then that demonstrates that, once again, that the books of Scripture were written in the time in which they claimed to be written, because if they were written, as liberals say, sometime later in the post-exilic period, at the most extreme example, if they were written in 400 B.C., then the people who lived in 400 B.C. used completely different treaty forms, completely different formats, and they were unaware of the older formats. And so the very form, form in which the Mosaic Law is structured indicates that it's written in the historical milieu of the mid-2nd century uh, B.C. And it's part of the curses that God outlined for Israel as the, the nation that was in covenant relationship with God. He promised that if they were disobedient, he would bring adversity upon the nation. He would bring that in five different stages. The stages would include increasing problems economically, which would be evidenced by drought and famine in the land. And ultimately, in the fifth stage, they would be removed from the land uh, militarily through conquest, and they would be scattered among the nations. So the fact that there is famine in the land reminds us that that during the time of Judges, they went through various cycles of uh, discipline and divine disobedience, and this clearly places it during one of those cycles when God is punishing the nation. There is adversity in the land. They are going through a crisis, and whenever we go through a crisis or we go through suffering or adversity, it's an opportunity to either trust God or to try to handle the adversity on our own terms. It also reminds us of one of the more well-known famines in Genesis uh, Genesis 15, when Abraham left the land to go to Egypt, got outside the will of God, rather than staying in the land and trusting God, he left the land and went to Egypt. And so that's, that very subtle hint here suggests that, that when Elimelech leaves Bethlehem to go to Moab, that he is out of fellowship. He's trying to handle his problems on his own term, on his own resources, and not by trusting God. And that fits the context. Elimelech, as we saw, was, was born during a positive time in the, in the life of Israel. His name reflects a positive spiritual 
uh, context. His name means God is king or my God is king. And yet the names that he gives his sons are names that reflect depression and challenge and, and struggle and weakness. So by the time he, he has children, he's very pessimistic. He's not focusing on God, and history seems something that is very bleak. So there, there's a very negative tone behind this. They enter the land of Moab, a land of, the land that, uh, in fact, it is the Moabites who were the first to introduce Baalism in, in uh, history. They are the first in, in numbers. It's the first place where we run into the uh, fertility worship associated with uh, the worship of Baal. And so immediately we are, uh, the suggestion from the author is that he is not only out of fellowship, but he is going into a foreign land that's been forbidden to him, and he is seeking sustenance from foreign gods. And in that context, rather than finding life, Rather than finding food, rather than finding sustenance, what he finds, what they find is death, what they find is suffering, what they find is just the opposite of what they're seeking. And so it is there that we discover that in verse 3 that Elimelech dies, leaving Naomi a widow, and then her two sons who marry while they're there, then over the course of those ten years, they too die. So that Naomi is left without a protector, without a provider, in that culture, women did not go out and get a job. Women did not take care of themselves. So she is left, uh, as it were, destitute with no source of income. There's no, uh, <clears throat> there's no welfare system. There's no safety net socially. She is left on her own. Everything is taken from her. And her response to her adversity is rather than trusting God, she becomes bitter. And that becomes clear later in the chapter when she says, Don't call me Naomi anymore, but call me Mara, which means bitter. And that introduces us to the theme of the book because her bitterness is turned to joy. By the end of the book, the cursing is turned to blessing. And therein lies an understanding in the reason God allows suffering and adversity in life is because he has greater purposes. We are trapped within a finite box and our knowledge is limited. We do not see the whole picture. We do not understand all that is going on in the plans and purposes of God. So too often, based on our finite understanding or finite judgment, people tend to want to judge God. Why did you let this happen? How could a good God uh, let things like this happen? And from a limited perspective, we're immediately assuming that somehow we know more than God, that we're wiser than God, we're, we are smarter than God, and therefore, God certainly can't be God or there can't be a God if certain things happen. And that raises the background issue in this book, which is the, the issue of suffering. And why is there undeserved suffering? And this is a timely topic because there are many folks who have raised the question after the events of September 11th as to uh, how could God let something like that happen. And so I want to spend some time addressing the issue of Undeserved suffering. Now, this is not a new question. It is one that is raised in the Scriptures and one that, that has plagued many believers in the Scriptures from the beginning. They raised the question before God. And one of the most uh, profound examples of this is in the 94th Psalm. So turn with me to Psalm 94. Psalm 94. We don't know who the writer of this particular psalm is, but he clearly raises the same question that folks today raise. And any time we are buffeted by 
uh, adversity in life when things are extremely difficult and we are focused on our own life and all of a sudden we are treated harshly, we're treated unjustly, we always seem to cry out to God and want to know why this has happened to us. Same thing is echoed by the psalmist here. He begins by saying, O Lord God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine forth. Now that reminds us that the Lord says, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. There is a difference between divine justice, referred to as vengeance, which is the prerogative of the Supreme Court of Heaven, and the administration of justice and self-defense and war in the human realm, which God has clearly delegated to mankind. As I stated on the, our message after September 11th, people who think that war and that our response to the September 11th attack is vengeance are distorting the issues. War should never be vengeful. Now, I know that people are going to respond in vengeance, but that is not the purpose of war. That is not the purpose of retaliation. The purpose of retaliation when we're faced with a crisis of this magnitude is that the only way to keep things of this nature from continuing, they may happen for a while, but the only way to bring a stop to them is take the violence to the enemy and to destroy his ability to wage these kinds of attacks on us. You cannot do it by merely exercising a defensive strategy. Defense never wins wars except in the realm of spiritual warfare, as we've studied, and that's the believer's response. But even then, God executes the offensive strategy through Jesus Christ. Defense never wins. We could never develop enough airport security. We could never develop enough uh, security through immigration authorities to prevent that from happening again. The only way to prevent it is to take it to the enemy. Anyone who has any understanding of strategy or tactics in any realm, whether it's in business, whether it's in uh, gamesmanship, in chess or some other game, must recognize the only way to win, the only way to pr truly protect yourself is to go on the offensive against the opponent. And so we go on the offensive. God has delegated that responsibility to man under the category of wielding the sword in Romans chapter 13, that national government has the responsibility to wield the sword, and that has a, uh, a twofold application. One, an, ex an external application in terms of protecting a nation from enemies abroad, and that is under the category of war. And secondly, in terms of protecting the citizens on the inside in terms of the administration of justice and the application of of uh, capital punishment. Capital punishment is not something that should be used uh, haphazardly but consistently to anyone who commits certain capital crimes. Not because, and the scripture lays the foundation for that, not because it is going to uh, keep someone else from doing it. The, the, the idea of, of uh, of discouraging others from committing those same crimes is not what's present in the Scripture. The Scripture presents in the fact, capital punishment under the guise that if anyone takes the life of another human being, they forfeit their life simply because they have reached such a degradation of their own soul that they have forfeited their own right to live. Just as a cancer uh, must be uh, surgically removed from the body in order for the body to survive in a healthy manner, so any human being who reaches a point of soul degradation and sin 
uh, or lack of control of the sin nature that they commit certain crimes, they need to be removed in order for the, the human body to maintain its integrity. And that is different from vengeance. Vengeance is the function of the Supreme Court of Heaven. And God has delegated certain things to mankind, and he has reserved certain things to himself. And there are times when we can't do anything, so all we can do is rely upon the Supreme Court of Heaven, and that is the situation in this psalm. So the psalmist cries out to God, God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth, because the vengeance of God is the execution of his justice. He can exercise his justice fairly and accurately because he knows everything. God knows all the facts. He has always known all the facts because he is eternal. He is omniscient, which means he knows everything, all possible and all um, actual. Therefore, because he knows all the facts and man cannot pull the wool over God's eyes, he can render an accurate verdict. Besides that, God is absolute truth. He knows all truth and he is all truth, so he can... Uh, properly and correctly render recompense to the arrogant, verse 2. And then the question comes up in verse 3, the question that resonates through through the soul of anyone who has gone through undeserved suffering. He says, How long shall the wicked, O Lord, how long shall the wicked exalt, or the wicked praise? They pour forth words. They speak arrogantly. All who do wickedness vaunt themselves. They crush thy people, O Lord, and afflict thy heritage. They slay the widow and the stranger and murder the orphans. And they have said, The Lord does not see, nor does the God of Jacob pay heed. See, the, 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 the cry of the wicked is that there is no ultimate payday for sin. There is no ultimate judgment from God. God really isn't there. He doesn't see. He doesn't pay attention to these things. If he did... He wouldn't let them happen. See, that's what their, their rationale is, and that's the rationale, according to Scripture, of the, of the fool, because it is the fool who has said in his heart that there is no God, when the very fact that you articulate the position that there is no God presupposes that there must be a God. We've gone over that argument in the past, and I'm not going to take the time to go through it today, but the very fact that people speak and uh, use categories that are absolutes uh, in trying to reject absolute, show that they must presuppose an absolute in order to deny absolutes, and that must that demonstrates that they have to presuppose what they're trying to prove in order to disprove it. And the ultimate position of the unbeliever is foolish because it is inherently illogical and contradictory. They pour forth words they speak arrogantly. This is the basic problem. Man thinks that he is the ultimate reference point with regard to defining history and defining right and wrong. So all who do wickedness vaunt themselves. They crush thy people, O Lord. They afflict the heritage. Here we recognize the, the cry of the psalmist that, that he is looking out and he is saying, these were innocent victims. They, they had nothing to do with wards. The, the language here reminds me that or suggests that this took place during a time, either 722 B.C. in the northern kingdom when the Assyrians are coming in and just completely wiping out the northern kingdom, or perhaps during the, one of the invasions of either the Assyrians uh, during the time of Hezekiah, or perhaps the Chaldeans under Nebuchadnezzar prior to 586 B.C., when hundreds, if not thousands, were killed during that time of war. And they would be viewed as innocents, as those who were not combatants. 
those who were uh, the widows and the stranger, the orphans, no one there to protect them, and their lives were taken from them. And so the, uh, the psalmist is saying, Lord, this does not seem fair. How can good things, how, how can these bad things happen to, to these innocent people? To these, they, they did nothing to aggravate the enemy. They did nothing to cause this on their own. How in the world can this take place? We, we see this, this wickedness take place around us. How can we have vindication in the midst of this? And then in verse 8, the psalmist says, Pay heed, you senseless among the people. And when will you understand, stupid ones? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? In other words, he goes back to creation doctrine that God who created all things hears and sees and these things will not go unpunished. That the reason that they happen may be beyond our understanding at the moment, but ultimately justice will prevail. Verse 10, he who chastens the nations will he not rebuke. Even he who teaches man's knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are a mere breath. Blessed is the man whom thou dost chasten, O Lord, and dost teach out of thy law. Verse 12. By this time the psalmist has oriented his thinking to divine viewpoint and recognizes that there are overall purposes for, divine, for suffering and adversity that are coming into play here, that the suffering is not just random, it is not just uh, purposeless chaos, but that God is using it for a particular, a particular purpose. So in terms of our <coughs> understanding the doctrine of suffering, by way of introduction, we focus on the questions that we often hear. Usually we hear a phrase something like this, how, how can a good God allow this suffering to happen? Or usually it's more personal, it's how can a good God let this happen to me? How can a good God allow the Holocaust How can a good God allow famine to occur that wipes out hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of of, uh, children, orphans, and those who don't seem to deserve that sort of suffering? How can a good God allow any sort of tragic event? But as I said last time, to me the more interesting question is not how can a good God allow bad things to happen to good people, but how can a good God allow good things to happen to bad people? See, too often we have a wrong definition of the problem, and that points us in the wrong direction from the onset in terms of the solution. Incidentally, the very fact that people raise this question about the problem of evil hints at the solution. The fact that we do not naturally accept this world that is full of injustice, this world that is full of undeserved suffering, this world that is filled with chaos, the fact that we do not naturally accept that as normative, the fact that we don't like the fact that there is sin, suffering, disease, and death, um, puts us in line with with the statement from Dylan Thomas who cried out, Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. You see, we have this almost intuitive recognition that life isn't supposed to be this way. That this isn't normal. This isn't normative. For some reason, this is abnormal. And the very recognition that that there is some sort of uh, something out of kilter morally, this outrage at evil, 
tells us somehow, somewhere deep in our souls, we have a sense that there is a standard of goodness, a standard of rightness, a standard of justice that somehow is defective in this world, and yet something ought to be done about that. So the very fact that we ask the question indicates that at some intuitive level we are we recognize that there is a higher standard, and the question is, how do we discover that, and what are the answers? And only from the revelation of God do we have clear answers. Only the Bible provides clear answers for why evil exists and why there is undeserved suffering. So we have to focus on these questions that people ask, and, and as we go through, especially this time, there are going to be those who will come up to us and raise these questions. Let's, let's phrase the question a little bit in terms of the introduction. Let's look at some of the different forms of the question. Some may ask, how can a loving God let something like this happen? Now, when they phrase it that way, the issue is uh, they're, they're focusing on love and God's love. And usually what happens there and the mistake that is made is they're, they're taking their human concept of love and imposing that on God. And usually it, it, it's the result of a somewhat superficial or shallow view of love. Uh, another way in which the question is asked is why is there... Why is there evil in the world? But the, the one that is most commonly asked, and it comes from the, from the depths of our own suffering, is the question, why did God let this happen to me or, or to a loved one? Why does uh, God cause this to happen to me or make this happen? And, and the, the subtlety of that question is that it puts the blame on God, that somehow God is the one who did this. Then we have the question I referred to a minute ago, why does God let bad things happen to good people? But we must be extremely careful how we answer these questions. Because too often a poorly phrased question or question phrased a certain way predetermines the cast of the answer. And to answer certain questions is to give legitimacy to the false worldview that underlies the question. For example, if somebody asks you, and we've done this many, many times, somebody asks you if you've quit beating your wife, however you answer that question, you're wrong. So let me suggest that when somebody asks you the question, how can a good God let this happen to me, that maybe, that maybe we should not answer that question too quickly. We need to be reminded of what, the, uh, what Solomon says in the Proverbs. In Proverbs 26.4, he writes, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you also be like him. In other words, if we answer that question too quickly, we legitimize their false worldview that gave rise to that question. So maybe instead of, instead of answering the question, what we need to do is think a little more strategically like a good chess player and think about how we should respond in terms of another question. Answer the question with a question in order to uh, see if they are really ready to hear the answer. Too often what happens when you hear a question like that is there's a level of emotion, there's a level of anger, there's a level of bitterness that's already there, and there's no clear thinking, there's no clear rationality, and so all you're going to do if you try to answer the question is either create an argument or they're just going to dismiss you because they've used the whole question as a way of just dismissing the fact that God exists and there's no real in-depth thought underlying it. 
So in terms of our second, question, second point, the first point is the introduction raising the question. The second point is that in answering, we need to think strategically. We need to ask, first of all, how are they asking the question? Are they asking the question in a way that, that are, they, are they seriously seeking an answer? Perhaps they're, they're, they're just sort of shaking their head and saying, well, I really don't understand how a good God can let this happen. You know, they're not really challenging anything. They're just seeking understanding. So we need to, we need to be sensitive to the tone of the question. Where, where are they coming from? And we might, we might answer that question by saying, well, what do you think God is like? How do you understand the goodness of God? In other words, by throwing the question back on them, we're getting more information of how that person is thinking. And by asking a question strategically to someone who is in an emotional response, in anger, bitterness, or self-justification in some sense, what we're doing is we're causing them to stop emoting and to start thinking. You ask them a question, it's going to force them to stop feeling sorry for themselves because of the loss. It's going to force them to stop uh, being angry and to, to think a little bit about their own thoughts. Too, too often people re- react with these questions from an from an unthought-through position. They're just repeating what they've heard somebody else say, and there's no real sophisticated thought underlying the question. And by our response with the question, it helps them to focus what's going on in their own thinking. Perhaps they're not asking the question in an interested way or in a way where they're really seeking answers, but they're they're really challenging God. It's I don't what they're really saying when they say, "How can a loving God let this happen?" or "How can how can God allow someone so good and so wonderful to die?" What they're really saying is, obviously, there can't be a God because no God that I can conceive of would let something like this happen. Now, at that point, we have to ask a different type of question. Someone says, uh, "Ask the question: Why did God let this happen to me?" Or why did God let this happen to those people who were in the tower? Perhaps we should respond by saying, well, why shouldn't he? Why shouldn't God let that happen? Because, see, that draws them out. What is their value system? What is, the, what, what is their concept of justice or righteousness that underlies their question? Why, why shouldn't God allow that to happen? Or, or perhaps we should ask the question, how do you think God should have prevented this? How do you think God could have prevented that? How do you think God could have prevented the Holocaust? You see, if you think about it in any depth, what would have to happen is then that God would have to personally intercede in history and shut down human volition. Uh, But you see, there's the problem, is that man basically wants to be free and free from God. In fact, we've watched a number of rulings come down from the Supreme Court and other courts in the land where we've taken God out of the public schools. We've taken prayer out of the public schools. You can't teach... You can't teach uh, Bible classes at school. You can't talk about the Bible at school. Teachers can't ever talk, they can talk about anything they want to, but they can't talk about anything in the religious, spiritual dimension that's positive towards Christianity. Now, we've had cases where in the last year, during um, uh, the time of, uh, of uh, the, the fast that, that the Muslims have, that it was okay for the uh, schools in, over in New York to uh, allow 
the, the Muslims to take time out during class and go somewhere and pray on campus and fast and go through uh, their particular rituals. But if you're Christians, you can't have anything to do with it. So we've, we've removed God from the classroom. We've removed God from the public arena. We've removed God from the arena of, of public discourse as one option among other options. We don't even discuss it. And once God is removed from all of these arenas, and then something like... Uh, the events, the attack on September 11th happens, we say, well, where's God? Well, God's where we wanted him to be. He's completely out of the picture. We didn't want him to be involved. So there's this irony there that underlies the, the whole thing. And that is that man doesn't want God to be involved. And then as soon as the natural consequences of our own free will decisions display themselves in terms of all of their harshness and all of their horror, then we blame God. See, there's a complete inconsistency in the thinking of man. So we need to ask the question to focus the issues. Why shouldn't God allow things like this to happen? Why? How do you think God should have prevented it? And, and then an even more interesting question is, when it's phrased in the sense that, how could God let this happen to so-and-so, that they were so good? Well, what do you mean by good? Remember, when we'll look at the passage in a minute, that when... when uh, when Jesus was addressed by the rich young ruler, he said, Why do you call me good? There's none good but God. What do you mean by good? Why, are you, uh, how do you, why do you think that so-and-so was so good that God ought to directly intervene in keeping them alive? What's your ultimate value system? And it's you know, the interesting thing here that we need to point out. See, if you've caught my strategy, rather than answering the question right away, which tends to put the Christian on the defensive, what we need to do is think strategically and respond with a thought-provoking question that puts the other person on the defensive. Uh, it's, it's the same kind of thing that's happening right now in, in terms of secular argument. I was, when I was out in California, I was just appalled at all the typical liberal, left-coast, uh, anti-war peace rallies that were going on, and I heard a lot about what was going on up at Berkeley, which just seems to be, you know, it's sort of like with the terrorists, please uh, excise that, attack Berkeley next time, you know. I just say that facetiously. Um, it, it's amazing the kind of stuff that's going on out there and what they're allowed to get away with, and they pass resolutions in the, in the uh, university um, Congress to do, to do away with or impose penalties on the school newspaper because they published a, an editorial that had a picture of the terrorists going in, flying the planes into the um, World Trade Center and then waking up in hell. And so the, the, uh, school, the student uh, Congress passed a resolution condemning the, 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 the newspaper and asking for the university to impose uh, fines on the newspaper. And uh, they never once passed any resolution or said anything of a negative aspect towards the terrorists, which shows that their values are completely distorted. And on the other hand, their basic rationale was uh, operating out of postmodernism and multiculturalism, that all cultures have equal, equal value and everybody's opinions has equal weight. So who are we as Americans to judge the uh, terrorists that their, their ideas are less valuable than our ideas? And, uh, all, and then... Once they operate on this assumption that all, I just love this inconsistency. Once they set up this whole thing is the fact that, that man is just basically, uh, uh, everybody has a right to their own opinion and we can't judge anybody else. Then as soon as we go to war, they start marching and saying, stop the war. In other words, uh, 
everybody is, has a right to their own relative opinions unless their relative opinions disagree with their opinions. So nobody can have any absolutes unless they're, they start doing something we disagree with, and then we're going to pose our absolutes of uh, pacifism on them. And that's exactly what they're doing because the unbeliever, the unbelieving rationale, whatever it is, whether it's existentialism, whether it's nihilism, whether it's uh, Kantianism, whatever the worldview is that is being uh, set forth by the unbeliever, it ultimately in, ends up and is wiped out by internal inconsistencies. Because when you're living in God's world, the only consistency you can have is to operate consistently on God's revelation. So we need to respond carefully and strategically to the question that they ask and ask in return another question to focus the issue. Third, we must realize that these questions all have certain underlying assumptions. These questions that people ask all have underlying assumptions, and we need to think about what those assumptions are. So we need to focus the question. When they ask a question, how can a good God allow something to happen to a good person, we need to define what is meant by good. What do you mean by good? What do you mean by justice? Where do you get your standard of justice? Where do you get your standard of right and wrong? And how can you determine that if God causes uh, something to, or allows something to happen one day, that seems to you to be evil, that in the greater plan of God and in the greater scope of events, that there isn't a greater good. And see, philosophers will argue, well, I can't conceive of a greater good. Well, that's because we have a finite mind. Just because we can't conceive of a greater good does not, pre does not mean that there isn't a greater good. And therein lies the fallacy of their argument. Furthermore, we need to define what we mean by good. See, man operates in the created realm, and we want to think of good in purely relative terms. We think of good in comparison of one person to another or one culture to another. But we do not think about good as we should, which is in comparison to, a, to an absolute. In Mark 10:17, the rich young ruler, young man in Mark, in the Mark account, is identified just as a young man, comes up to Jesus and, and says, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, instead of answering the question, notice his strategy. He doesn't answer the question by giving him the gospel. He focuses the issue. Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. See, Jesus immediately follows the same strategy. He focuses on the real issue. What is your standard? See, Jesus knew that the standard that the young man was operating on was a relativistic standard based simply on the Mosaic law, which he had misunderstood. So in Mark 10:19, Jesus goes on to say, You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. All have turned... And he focuses the issue on the absolutes, and then he turns the young man's attention back to the absolutes in the law, that he cannot fulfill any of those laws. Romans 3.12 further emphasizes the issue of good, where we read, All have turned aside, together they have become useless. There is none who does good, there is not even one. See, we think about the fact, we say, well, how could God let this happen to this person? They were innocent, they were good, they were, they were kind, they were a wonderful person. 
but we forget the fact that from God's perspective, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The issue isn't why did God let something bad happen to one person, but why does any, is anybody left alive to experience good things? Because according to the justice of God, all are condemned. There is none righteous. There is not one. All have turned aside. And because of that, we know that all are under condemnation, but it is God's grace that keeps us alive. God's grace restrains evil, but it does not remove evil. It is in God's grace that he allows man to experience the negative consequences of his own bad decisions. Even though God does not override man's decisions, God is the one who is moving history towards his ultimate conclusions, and we never have a great enough perspective to understand just exactly how these things are working together. And as believers, we have the promise of Romans 8.28 that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. It doesn't say in that verse, all things work together for good to everyone. It says all things work together for good to those who love God. And that is a specific promise that God is working things together and has a purpose even in the negative suffering and adversity that we face. Furthermore, Scripture goes on to reaffirm in, throughout the Scripture that man is inherently evil. Psalm 14.1, we read, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. And the divine commentary is, See, they are corrupt. Man is inherently corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. This is the original from which Romans 3.12 is quoted. Psalm 14.3 says, They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. And so when we think about it from a biblical perspective, when somebody raises the question, how can God let, a good, let this bad thing happen to someone who is good?, If we answer that question too quickly, then we're buying into the presupposition that these people are good. And the Scripture says not one of us is good. See, none of us can earn eternal life. Not one of us can ever do good. Even our best, Scripture says, is as filthy rags. All of our works of righteousness, Scripture says, are as filthy rags. Not all of our works of unrighteousness, but all of our works of righteousness. Therefore, salvation is not based on what we do who we are, or how we respond to things. Salvation is based on who Jesus Christ is and what he did on the cross. God knew from eternity past that there would be a world filled with sin because of man's negative decisions, because of Adam's negative decision in the Garden of Eden when he disobeyed God and ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It plunged the human race into a condition of evil. See, this is the, one of the other presuppositions that underlies the, the, the question, and that is a false assumption that man is inherently good. And yet the biblical viewpoint is that man is not inherently good. Man is inherently evil. And so from a biblical viewpoint, man is evil, and God is the one who does indeed provide the solution. But the other thing I like to do when we face the question of evil is throw the throw the problem back on the other person and say, well, let's for a minute just set aside the question that you're asking because from your perspective you're saying that there can't be a God because bad things happen. And therefore, because evil exists, there can't be a God. Well, let's just table that for just a minute and let's look at the alternative solutions. If 
according to the biblical viewpoint, there was a point in time when there was no evil. Then God created the angels and gave the angels volition. And one angel, Lucifer specifically, the highest of all the angels, instead of exercising positive volition towards God, exercised negative volition towards God and introduced evil into the universe. God is good, God is righteous, and God cannot create anything but good and righteousness. The the angels were all created with perfect righteousness, but because of free will and the wrong exercise of free will, evil was created. So in terms of a Christian view, evil is finite. It has a finite beginning. God then, in the realm of creation, creates the heavens, the earth, and mankind... Not in, that, not in that order. He's already created the, the uh, universe for the habitation of the angels and the earth. But now he renovates the earth, Genesis chapter 1, and he creates mankind. And man, once again, uses his volition to disobey God and plunges the human race and creation, as we have it now, into evil. But that evil is going to be restricted. There is a time when evil will coexist with good in human history, this line is the line of good and this line is the line of evil, and God allows that to exist for a time in order to accomplish certain purposes. But eventually evil is going to be plunged into uh, the lake of fire and is going to be restricted and shut off, and good will exist forever and ever, and there is a final and ultimate resolution of the problem of evil. But in every other system, every other philosophical system, and every other worldview, and every other religious system, evil and good ultimately are either not, ultimately are both eternal. And there is no resolution of either one. And so you end up with a situation when you push any of these systems to their ultimate conclusion... C.S. Lewis once made the accurate observation. He had a lot of bad theology points, but he made an accurate observation in his search for truth uh, in, in his time of skepticism that ultimately the Christianity on the one hand and Hinduism on the opposite hand were the two extremes, and everything could either be pushed, could either be moved logically into one or the other. And in uh, the Eastern religions. You have a concept present in some forms in some forms of Hinduism of monism, and this is best expressed in the yin yang diagram. You have one side that's dark representing evil and one side that's white representing good, but they're all in one circle which expresses ultimate reality and even and even monism ultimately has as its component dualism, the eternality of good and evil, and you never because good and evil are both eternal. There is never a time when both did not exist, and ultimately a time in the future they will always, and ultimately they will both exist forever, and there is no resolution to the evil problem. And ultimately what that means in monism is that there's no real distinct basis, intellectual basis to distinguish between good and evil. They're all part of the one. And if there's no ultimate basis for good, distinguishing good and evil, you're plunged into typical relativism. 
and you can't say within, with any certainty what is absolutely good or absolutely right because they coexist for all time. So the unbeliever is basically left in a logical trap that he can't define what good and evil are as dis- distinct from one another. So that is one, one way to handle the problem is to ask, when you're asking the question, well, what do you mean by good and what do you mean by evil, eventually there are going to be some holes in the opposite position. Because man in his autonomy, man in his independence, seeks to define good on his own terms. But the problem is that man is finite. He is not omnipotent. He is not omniscient. And because he does not know all the facts, he can't really determine the answers to these ultimate questions. Ultimately, we need to address in this whole issue the question of divine justice. See, man wants to impose on God his own view of justice, which presupposes that man has the ability to understand what absolute justice is. But Abraham expresses the biblical viewpoint on justice most clearly in Genesis 18:25, when he says to God, Far be it from thee to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from thee, shall not the judge of the earth, the righteous one of all the earth, deal justly? And it presupposes the answer that God is righteous and he will deal justly because he is the only one who has all of the knowledge. So that brings us to the fourth point, which is the origin of evil and what the Bible says about the origin of evil. And we will take up that question when we come back next time, along with the reasons, the biblical reasons for suffering, both deserved and undeserved suffering, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity today to look at your word and to to probe the answers to questions that do plague us, questions about why do these things seem to happen, why do they happen on the earth, why is there unjust suffering. And we realize that in your omniscience and in your omnipotence and in your sovereignty, you have decreed that evil will coexist for a time with good, that you are using that for your own purposes in order to demonstrate that the creature cannot live independently from the Creator. For when the creature lives independently from the Creator, the consequence is always destructive, chaos, suffering, misery. That only when the creature lives in right relationship to the Creator can there be any uh, hope of stability, any hope of peace, any hope of salvation. Father, we pray that there's anyone here this morning who is uncertain of their eternal destiny and unsure of their, uh, unsure of their salvation, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Salvation is not based on who we are or what we have done. It is based on who Jesus Christ is and what he did on the cross. On the cross, Jesus Christ paid the penalty for every one of our sins. Because God is righteous and man is unrighteous, man man cannot have fellowship with God unless that problem of righteousness is dealt with. That problem was dealt with on the cross when Jesus Christ paid the penalty so that, that when we believe on him, his righteousness is imputed or credited to our account. Scripture says, He who knew no sin was made sin for us that the righteousness of God might be found in us. It is only at the cross that evil is solved. 
Jesus Christ paid the penalty so that ultimately there would be a resolution of the problem of evil and there would be a final vindication and judgment wherein all evil would be restricted and confined and eternally punished. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand these things and that we might be able to use them effectively as we seek to give answers to an unbelieving world. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen.